So I'll remind you of uh, uh, Proverbs 25.2, and uh, it says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search it out. So for some reason, God has concealed things, and uh, it's, He wants us to look it up, to figure it out, to uncover it, to search it out. And so it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. And so that's what we're doing uh, with this first part on this class of hermeneutics, is discovering the rules of interpretation, as it were, of the Bible. And so we're going to get into a section this morning that's going to be even more so uh, in that regard. So in your notes, number 66, to successfully interpret prophecy, a Bible student must familiarize himself with the language of prophecy, the language of prophecy, which is metaphors and typology. So some of you know Spanish. That's a language. I took Greek in college and Hebrew, the language that the Bible was written in for the purpose of being able to read um, the New Testament in Greek. I don't uh, read very well in Hebrew. I can just look things up and do word studies. Uh, but that's a language. And so the language of prophecy is metaphors and typology. Much of it is, and that's why people don't understand it, because of the fact that it, it's not what you might call straightforward, simple kinds of language. So I have a good friend who's a missionary in a closed country. And he got into the country because he has a business and he was going to start the business and run the business in this country as a businessman. But undercover, he is doing uh, ministry missions work with uh, people that he comes in contact with, and so far he's been quite successful. But when he got ready to go, he said, I would really love it if you would pray for me. I said, that'd be great. I'd love to do that. And he gave me a piece of paper. And the piece of paper at the top said, code talk. He said, now, there's certain words that they're, they're going to read everything I send out of the country, emails and everything that comes in. And certain words will uh, make them attentive to him as an individual. So some of the words were baptism equals bath. So I don't write the word baptism. He doesn't write the word baptism as email. He reads the word bath. But I understand that bath means baptism. Uh, and there was a whole page of these, these code words that apply to various things that he does. Bible, it was the good book. And, you know, the good book, there's lots of good books. So I read good book in his email to me. I know he's talking about the Bible. Uh, he gave three people a bath. He baptized three people. Uh, church is called a school. And so he just has these key words, and he has a word that goes with it. They're code words. And so um, the language of prophecy is metaphor, uh, words that aren't the exact thing, but they translate into a different word and typology. And we're going to look at that this morning. Nick 67, it's very important to understand the use of metaphors and types is not in the slightest suggesting the use of allegory to interpret prophecy. So, would you repeat after me? I'll say it and then 
I'll say it again. You can say it with me. Allegory is stupid. <laughs> you ready? Allegory is stupid. There's no rhyme or reason for it. It's just your imagination. Whatever you decide, that's what it means. And so when we talk about metaphor, when we talk about typology, this is precise. It's not um, allegory. 68, metaphors and types are all connected back to the Bible. And this is so critically important. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Metaphors and types are all connected back to the Bible. Allegory simply requires an overactive imagination to come up with a hidden meaning. Now, there's so much of this going on today. And uh, you, when you read anything online, uh, in books, uh, and you get the hint that it's, they're going down this, uh, what's it mean to me, what's it mean to you kind of thing, and then you just want to go get clear away from that. You won't get anything out of that that's true. 69, prophecy is the most difficult part of the Bible to interpret accurately because there is so much metaphor or figurative language used. And so again, it's like reading the Bible in Spanish. You simply have to learn Spanish. And once you learn it, then you can read it easily. Uh, it's like learning Greek, reading the New Testament in Greek, learning Hebrew, reading the Old Testament in Hebrew. We're going to learn, learn metaphor, and we're going to learn typology. And it's precise. It's not random. It's not arbitrary. It's very precise. When a word is used for a different word, the word has a consistent interpretation, and it's not hard to figure out what those are if you study. Number 70, if the author uses metaphorical or figurative language, it must be understood as metaphorical, and we must seek the meaning of the metaphor. Go back to the start there. If the author uses metaphorical or figurative language, it must be understood as metaphorical. And again, it's not that difficult if it's, you read it and it, it, it's strange, it's metaphor. And so then you simply figure out what the words uh, are meaning, what they, we must seek the meaning of the metaphor from the language of the Bible of the day or in another place in the Bible. So every metaphor that is used, you will find the meaning for it in another place in the Bible. Let me say that again. Every metaphor that is used, you will find the meaning for the metaphor in another place in the Bible. So I gave you this last week. We'll go through it again. Luke chapter 8, verse 5. <clears throat> Do you have that on your thing? No. Okay. Well, evidently, I didn't get that. To, I'll read it. The sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. So Jesus says this. It's a parable. Now, it's obvious that this is metaphor. What in the world does that mean? So in verse 9, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. He said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Okay, disciples, I'm going to tell you what it means. You're the only ones who get it. But to the rest, it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. 
seed is the Word of God. So a dude went out to sow seed. That's the Word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. The devil comes and takes away the Word from their heart. That's the birds. So the birds are pictures of demons or the devil so that they will not believe and be saved. So Ezekiel. All the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs and under its branches, and all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all the great nations lived under its shade. It's talking about the Assyrian Empire. And so Ezekiel's having a vision. So what in the world? He compared this empire to a big tree. And he said, all the birds of the heavens nested in its boughs. So Jesus told us what those birds are, and it's consistent. They're demons. The Assyrian Empire was a big empire, big tree. All the great nations lived under its shade. That is, they, they were benefited from the economy, from the leadership, from everything that they had, and in the branches were a whole bunch of demons. I would bet that if a prophecy was made about the United States of America, they might say it's a big tree, its branches a whole bunch of birds. Big ones, black ones. Here's another one. Daniel chapter 4, verse 12. This is Nebuchadnezzar uh, having a dream and Daniel interpreting it. It's about the Babylonian Empire. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. This is a picture of the Babylonian Empire led by Nebuchadnezzar. The birds of the field found shade under it. So what are those? Well, Jesus told us. Matthew chapter 13. Just a point of interest, I said uh, when we talk about mystery, previously unrevealed truth, well, chapter 13 of Matthew is called the mystery. Jesus starts it out by saying, let me tell you the mystery of the kingdom. And he's talking about the church, but he's kind of a shadow description. It's a mystery form, not full-blown, just some signs about what the church would be, the mystery of the church. And one of the parables that he says here in uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 32, uh, talking about this mystery form of the kingdom being like a mustard seed. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full-grown, it is larger than the garden plants. It becomes a tree. And the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. So he said, this mystery form, the kingdom, the church is going to start real small. It started on the day of Pentecost, real small. It grew up and has grown up big today. But in its branches will be a bunch of birds. You want to see evidence of that? Go to YouTube, Google sermons. Listen to some. Yeah. A lot of birds nesting in the branches of what we would term the church in the world today. Started out little, grown big. And so you, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. You know what that means. Why? Well, because Jesus told us when he told us the parable of the sower. So a metaphor is something that is used in place of something else. It's code language and the meaning of the words are revealed in the Bible. You just have to discover where it's at, what it means, and then apply it consistently. Number 71, when a metaphor is used, the meaning of the metaphor is consistent throughout the Bible. 
So circle that one. That's so important. We're not talking about allegory that changes depending on what you want it to mean. It's consistent. Would you repeat after me? Allegory is stupid. Yeah, okay. So don't forget that. John 1.29, the next day Jesus, I mean, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus come to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. Did he see a sheep? No, he didn't see a sheep. He saw a man. So why did he call him the Lamb of God? Well, because of Leviticus. He's talking to Jewish people who knew the book of Leviticus and all the sacrificial system and the fact that lambs were offered up for sin and Jesus is the Lamb of God. Nobody had a problem understanding what that meant. Uh, It's a word that has a meaning that's consistent throughout the Bible. 72, when we say that we interpret the Bible literally, that doesn't mean that we don't allow for metaphor, figurative language. Metaphor, figurative language, hyperbole, other normal ways of communicating. So Jesus says, if you're a rich dude, you got about as much chance of getting into heaven as a camel through the eye of a needle. Now people for years have been trying to figure out what that means. They come up with all kinds of explanations. So Jesus used what I use, hyperbole. It's an exaggeration meant to emphasize a point. Uh, and it's obvious to everybody who's listening, and it was, uh, hyperbole almost is always humorous in that it kind of makes you chuckle. Yeah, a camel going through the eye of a needle. <laughs> and we're trying to figure out, what's a needle? What's the camel? Some people say, well, that's a certain gait, and camel had to get on his knees, and all kinds of things like that. It's just a hyperbole, an exaggeration to make a point. How easy it is for a camel to get through an eye of a needle? Not very easy. It's going to take some time. You're a rich dude. You're in a bad place. So he's just making a point with a hyperbole, and we understand language has hyperbole, language has metaphor, language uses typology, and we figure it out uh, just by thinking 73, an overemphasis on being literal is called wooden literalism. So it's a simple matter of reading the Bible and having wisdom, comparing the Bible with other sections and understanding what it means. Revelations 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus speaking. What door? The door of my house, the door of the church, the door of my car, the door of my barn, the door of my shop. What's he talking about? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Oh, it must be the door of my house because I don't have a table to eat at in my shop. So, is he talking about a literal wooden door that opens in my house, that Jesus is going to knock on that. I think almost anybody who reads that understands that this is uh, metaphorical. The door would be uh, an entrance into my life, into my heart, opens the door. If I hear his voice, open the door, invite him in. He dines with me, fellowships with me. 
There's hardly anybody who doesn't get that because you understand that language does that, uses that. We do that all the time. And so the Bible is full of metaphorical. But if you're going to try to look for a wooden door, uh, you're going to look for a long time. 74, in the book of Revelation, there is not a symbol or metaphor used that is not in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, or Zechariah. So if you want to read the book of Revelation and understand it, there's a whole lot of metaphor in the book, and you've got to understand what the words mean. Well, almost every one of them is used in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. Read those books, identify the metaphors, and then read the book of Revelation. It's sort of like having a dictionary of Spanish words. What did you say? Okay, let me look that one up. Oh, okay, bathroom. Yeah, got it. Okay. So you just know the word means this. Know the word means this. So Revelation has metaphor. Those metaphors are used in other books in the Bible, books of prophecy. And John knew those and wrote accordingly. 75, a basic hermeneutical rule used in interpreting prophecy is always use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So again, circle that one. That is an absolute essential law of hermeneutics. This isn't an issue of your imagination. Uh, it's precise. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Do you have Ezekiel 37 in your... Yeah, okay. This is a common passage, and I'm not going to get real in-depth into it, but it's just an example of prophecy. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them. <clears throat> Round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord, you know. <laughs> you know what that is? That's a chicken answer. Uh, I don't want to get it wrong. Okay, Lord, you, uh, you know. Again, he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. Behold, a rattling. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, sinews were on them and flesh grew and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they uh, come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Oh. What's that? So, did you know that nobody had a chance on figuring that one out before my birthday? You're thinking, what's my birthday got to do with it? My birthday was in 1948, May of 1948. It's when the nation of Israel was reformed as a nation. 
And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, look at that. Jewish people came from all over the world, and they continue to flood into the nation of Israel. Um, thousands and thousands of, of Jewish people, not just religious Jews, but ethnic Jews, coming into the land. The country was reformed. 1967, there was a war, and uh, it's continuing. Much of the Old Testament, much of the New Testament couldn't make sense out of it because Israel didn't exist as a nation. Jews were all over the world. There was no country of Israel. And 1948 was a good year. May 48, Israel was born as a nation. October of 1948, I showed up on the scene. So that's why I say the rapture is going to occur before my 80th birthday. Uh, we'll talk about that later when we start talking about the rapture. The bones, they're dead, brought together. Resurrection. You could think of that about people being resurrected, but uh, in the context, if we were to look at Psalms thir uh, Isaiah 36, 37, 38, it's about the nation of Israel being resurrected as a nation, uh, born again as a nation, <clears throat> 76, the challenge of the Bible of, for Bible students is to be able to tell the difference between that which is literal, that which is metaphor, which is a metaphor or a figure of speech. A number of years ago, I was elk hunting, and we had a group of us guys, and there was a little dirt road in front of our camp, and this pickup drove by and stopped. And there was two, looked like college-age kids in the pickup, and they got out, and they said, we need a little help. We said, okay, what do you need? We shot an elk, we think. But we're not 100% sure. We looked in the back of the pickup, and there was a deer. It wasn't even a big deer. Before I could say something, one of the other guys in the group said, oh, yeah, that's an elk. Nice elk. Now, this was back in the days before all the animal rights stuff, and we used to take and put the horns on the front of the pickup, drive around through town, show it off. And this guy said, you know, you need to take those. Those are nice. Put those right on the front of your pickup and drive around uh, through Legrand. That's where we were near. And they said, oh, cool. So they, they cut the head off, mounted it on the, on the horn, and uh, the, the pickup, and down the road they went. We all said, man, it'd be so cool to follow them into Legrand. I wonder how long they drive before they get pulled over. Uh, and we used to laugh. You know, a guy shouldn't be able to go elk hunting if he can't tell the difference between an elk and a deer. I mean, like I say, it wasn't even a big deer. So can you tell the difference between... Uh, Literal speech and metaphorical. If you're going to be a Bible student of prophecy, you've got to be able to do that. Uh, that's just sort of one of those skills you've got to get a grip on. 77, in the weeks ahead as we study the various aspects of prophecy, a consistent question will be, is this a metaphor? So I'll ask the question, and when we get down the road just a couple more weeks, I'm going to give you some assignments. I'll say, read this passage half a dozen times. A couple of key words in it. And so, is it metaphor? If it is, what's it mean? 
78. Another language of prophecy is typology. So Leviticus. Somebody said, how would you describe Leviticus? I said, speed read. <laughs> uh, Leviticus. It's the Levitical sacrificial system in detail, none of which we do now. So when you read Leviticus, it's like, wow, man, this is dry as dirt. Well, Leviticus is typology. That means it's describing the future. And so there will be some interpretation take place as we look at the meaning of Leviticus and make it apply to today in how we're saved. 79, much of the Bible is written using typology. So the task of the Bible student is to figure out what the typology is and then interpret it consistently. So it's a fascinating topic, typology. It's one that I have studied and read books on a lot. You can get a book about the tabernacle that was built by the nation of Israel and understand that almost everything in the tabernacle is a picture of something to do with our Savior, the Messiah, uh, the temple in heaven, all kinds of different things, as well as the sacrificial system, as well as much of the other Old Testament. Number 80, this will be a, uh, a number you want to circle. Much of the Old Testament is written as a type or picture of New Testament truth. Much, much, much of the Old Testament was written as a illustration, as a picture of New Testament truth. Some of, it, some of it's obvious, some of it's not so obvious. But once you start seeing that, it increases tremendously your ability to understand uh, the book of Revelation and specifically as a New Testament book. 81, the type is in the Old Testament and the antitype, or that which it's illustrating, is in the New Testament. I'm giving you this information now in kind of a quick, uh, random way, but when we start looking at some prophecy and, and we start talking about typology, we'll go back and then we'll look at it in more detail. Um, 82, typology is when an event, an object, a teaching, or a person is used to illustrate a New Testament truth. Now, if you were to think about it, you could probably identify some right off the top of your head. It takes a little bit of time to kind of figure it out. So I'll give you one that's pretty obvious. Uh, Numbers 21.9, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, you remember, the nation of Israel was grumbling all the time about manna. Man, we've got to have manna again. And so they just grumbled, no water, manna again. And so God got really upset with them and sent a bunch of serpents and snakes in and biting everybody. So they pray, and, and, and so God says, Moses, put this serpent, this bronze serpent, on a big stake and tell everybody if they get bitten, if they want to live, they've got to look at it. 
I preached a sermon, Easter sermon, a number of years ago entitled, Look and Live. Look and Live. And so, in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. And so, God says to Moses, and you might say, why in the world did he do that? Make a serpent on a stick and put it up and make everybody look at it. Well, they might think, well, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. I'll figure this out on my own. I'll cure myself. Um, So it was a type or a picture. Old Testament event illustrates New Testament truth. Now, this one, we're told exactly what it means. Romans 5, 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type or a picture of Jesus. And so as you study Adam, you'll get illustrations about Jesus and who he is and what he did. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. God says, Isaac, I mean, Abraham, go kill your son. Put him on a pile of wood and burn him up. So Abraham takes off to do just that. And at the last minute, God says, no, no, here's a sheep over here. Use him instead. And he who would receive the promises was offering up his only begotten son, Abraham's only son, Isaac, and it was he to whom it was said, Is Isaac your descendant, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type, as a picture. My son wasn't going to die and said, Here's a ram over here. We'll take him and he'll take his place. Old Testament story, Abraham, Isaac, illustrates New Testament truth. So Isaac is a type or a picture of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer, which was his own life. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy, copy and shadow. A copy and shadow, that's a type of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for a sea, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Build this tabernacle just the way I showed you because it's a picture of the real thing. Don't mess it up. You remember the story that Israel is traveling through the wilderness and they didn't have any water, so God told Moses, strike the rock. He did, and water came out. And so in the New Testament, we learn that that rock is a picture of Jesus and the rock is a picture of eternal life or the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's a type. And later, they grumbled about no water and God said to Moses, speak to the rock. Well, Moses smacked it with a stick. Water still came out, but God said to Moses, Moses, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to die before you get there. You ever read that and think, come on, Lord. I mean, that's not a very big deal. 
hit the rock instead of speaking to it? Give me a break. So in the New Testament, we find out the rock is a picture of Jesus. Striking the rock is a picture of his death on the cross, and it makes it clear he suffered and died once for our sins, not twice. So when Moses struck the rock the second time, it was like a beautiful picture, and he took some black paint and just messed it all up. And so we don't really get it because we don't understand the importance of the type, the message that was sent by the picture of the rock being Christ, being struck for us, and out of him comes springs rivers of living water. When Moses hit it twice, he ruined the picture. Jesus wasn't struck twice. He didn't die twice, just once. Sometimes people will say to me, well, I know we, uh, the, the baptism and immersion, that's the way it's supposed to be, but is it really that big a deal? So when you go under the water, Romans 6 says it's a picture of what? You're being buried with Christ. You're died. You're dead to self, and you come out of the water. You're resurrected to newness of life. It's a acting out of a picture, and the picture, God's pictures are important. We don't want to mess his pictures up. Matthew 12, 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Old Testament story takes a whole book. New Testament truth, Jonah is a type of Christ. Uh, his time in the Fish is an illustration of Jesus' time in the earth or in the grave. 83, David, Solomon, Isaac, Melchizedek, Adam, jo Jonah, Joseph were all types of Jesus. And as you look at their life, you can see clearly what it's illustrating as you look at Christ. Joseph, uh, he suffered, was in jail, you know how old he was when he became the second most powerful person in the country of Egypt? He's 30. When did Jesus begin his ministry? When he was 30. All kinds of parallels. And he saves his people. Saves his people even as Jesus did. So David obviously was a type. Solomon, it's a whole bunch of verses that show how Solomon was a type of Jesus as he built the temple. 84, because types are a shadow of the real thing, they're not an exact picture, but a semblance of the real thing. Oh, that simply means don't go crazy uh, when you're looking at typology. You're getting illustrations uh, so you can better understand the full picture. 85, a lot of the Old Testament is type of New Testament truths. I said that once, I'll say it again. A lot of the Old Testament, some of the stories there are uh, illustration of New Testament truths. As you make the connection and as you do the study, it really is uh, amazing to see the connection. And it is an incredible way for us to grow in our faith as we see the connection. Is that coincidence that that happened? All those Old Testament stories and fit so well with the New Testament. That just happened by chance. 
Hundreds, thousands of years separating the writing of those, the occurrence of those. I mean, it's an awesome proof that the Bible is indeed the inspired, inerrant Word of God as you study those parallels. 86, a lot of the Psalms are a prophecy of future events written as a type. Psalms are amazing in their ability to show us what Jesus felt emotionally and to see the prayers that he prayed. Almost all the Psalms are a prophecy of the very life of Jesus and the things he felt, the prayers that he prayed as you read them such. There's some that are obvious, but a whole lot others that aren't. I have some Psalms I was going to read. I don't know if you have them up there, but I'm going to skip them uh, for the sake of time. And we'll get back to some of them. So if PowerPoint person, you can jump ahead to uh, number 87. The church is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but there are many types of the church in the Old Testament. So the church was a mystery not revealed unto the Apostle Paul. Jesus made mention of it in a mystery kind of form in Matthew 13. Talked about building his church, but nothing in detail about the church until you get to Paul's writings, who was the apostle of the Gentiles of the church age. But there's a whole lot of typology in the Old Testament that pictures the church, illustrates the church, and once you get into the new, you can see it. Uh, 88, Eve... Eve is a picture or a type of the church. When uh, God made this declaration, Adam is a type of Jesus. It's not good for Adam, the man, to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him, a partner suitable for him. That was a prophetic statement concerning the church, the bride of Christ. That's the purpose of the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. We're the core, we're the center, we're the hub of which everything else revolves around, the church, the bride of Christ. First emphatically stated prophecy, not good for Adam to be alone. Adam is a type of Jesus where the Father is creating, uh, expanding the family, as it were, a partner for Jesus, his son. That's us, the church. Eve is a type of the church. Ruth is a picture of the church. You ever read the book of Ruth and say, hey, you know, what's this in it about? Nothing in here about theology or anything. You read the story about a romance between Boaz and Ruth, and you're seeing uh, a typology of Jesus and the church. Solomon's bride in the Song of Solomon, the type of the church. A person who wrote about that, preached about that a lot, was uh, um, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon. Rebecca and Esther can also be types of the church. Illustrate the church today, Old Testament. 89, Noah's Ark and the nation of Israel escaped from the ten... Uh, Noah's Ark and the nation of Israel's escaped from the ten plagues on Egypt. Types of the church's rescue from the tribulation. So when we start talking about pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, partial-trib, we're going to look at some of these Old Testament types that illustrate... Uh, the tribulation. Number 90, typology is a fascinating topic 
and hermeneutical tool for studying the New Testament and prophecy. It's a fascinating topic. I have many books on the topic. I enjoy reading them because I like discovering what the Bible means. But a person can go crazy and weird if caution is not exercised. Ninety-one, the guiding principle is to stay within what is obvious, indicated by other passages and consistent with all of Scripture. I'm always suspicious of weird new stuff. People have been reading the Bible for a couple thousand years, and all of a sudden something new and weird comes out. I think, eh... Probably somebody's ate too much pizza before they went to bed. Okay, I'm going to go fast on the rest of these so we can have time for some questions. 92, trying to discover the intent of the author is called exegesis. That's a term for what does the author mean? Exegesis. Ninety-three. One of the dangers of interpreting the Bible, even for those who say they are using the literal method, is to practice eisegesis instead of exegesis. And that's a pretty simple explanation. Eisegesis is where I decide what something means before I interpret it and then make it mean what I want it to mean. And you can do that with just about anything. And so when there's differing interpretations of prophecy, we need to ask ourselves the question, okay, is somebody using eisegesis to come up with this conclusion? That is, they had the conclusion before they ever started. And once you start with a presupposition that's not right, you're going to end up with a conclusion that's not right. 94, eisegesis is reading into the text our own presuppositions and assumptions. So I ask myself the question all the time, okay, I grew up in the church. I went to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. I went to summer camp. I mean, I just grew up in the church hearing lots of teaching. And was it all accurate? And it is in my head stuck there. So now when I read the Bible, I read the Bible with all of that there. And I arrive at any portion of Scripture with stuff that's in my head that was put there when I was a little kid. So, I arrive at a passage of Scripture with presuppositions, with assumptions, with pre-formed theology and ideas, and how much of that is accurate and how much of it isn't. So, I continually ask myself the question, did I come to this conclusion because of a presupposition that was put in my head when I was six that may or may not be accurate? Uh, 95, saying true to the text requires a great deal of honest, honesty, openness, and teachable spirit.
96, the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the church and for our individual lives. There are no addendums. No addendums. No add-ons. God in His sovereignty gave us the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. We have it. Now we need to figure out what it means. People all the time want to add to it. 97, there is no Book of Mormon or any other literature or message that is an addendum or addition to the Bible. Ninety-eight, a major source of extra-biblical information today is from individuals who have a word from the Lord There's a bazillion of them on YouTube. I don't know. I've never seen any of those dudes who came up with a word from the Lord and it didn't happen. There was a whole bunch of them in regards to the election. Uh, if they're going to come out with some kind of a statement that says, oops, must have not been the Lord that I got that information from. A vision or a dream and declare it to be authoritative. This is the way it's going to be. There's a ton of that going on. 99, authoritative means that they teach or communicate their new revelation to others as truth. I get quite a bit of that uh, coming into my life, and one of the things I say uh, did you know that the Bible says that everything that uh, is spoken as truth needs to be authenticated by two other witnesses, two other people who have had similar kinds of uh, words from the Lord, so you validate each other on that. Who are the ones that you have? Uh, and I don't know as I've ever had anybody say, oh yeah, it's Joe and Tom. Uh, so I discount it. Jeremiah, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How, how long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. He says, what does my word have in common? What is... Uh, grain have in common with straw. So we have the Bible, the Word of God, and it's truth. And we need to read it, study it, memorize it, understand it, live by it. 